Good morning. Let's have the uh, kingdom kids be dismissed at this time. All right. It's been a good day, and I'm glad that you're here. We are glad to have our guests with us in the assembly to worship the Lord uh, at our side, by our side, and we with you as well. Okay, so we have been studying for several weeks now the good confession, Jesus, uh, and today is um, about Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and so I want you to repeat that with me again. I believe believe that Jesus is the Christ, the the Son of the living God. God. Amen. I love, I love that confession. You know, I have been blessed by uh, two men. Last week, I, I talked about a- apologists. And that's not people go around apologizing for the gospel. That are, that are, are people that are uh, set for the defense of the gospel. They have specially trained and studied that they might defend the gospel. And uh, I, I enjoyed um, a men's retreat one time with Josh McDowell at uh, he wrote that book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I uh, really enjoyed that. Uh, I think I was most blessed by Dr. McCarty. Dr. McCarty, I, I took his apologetics course 40 years ago. I absolutely loved it. I didn't do too well in the class. <laughs> but then in 2014, I, I was blessed to sit in uh, three or four of his lectures at Mid Atlantic Christian University. And in that, he, he gave me his uh, work on uh, the fundamental fact. The fundamental fact. And this message today is, is his work in that fundamental fact. And I want to bring it to you and, and hope that it blesses you the way it has blessed me. Please turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we'll be there in just a moment. Uh, back in 67... Uh, an atheist philosopher from Great Britain named Bertrand Russell. Um, he, he wrote a pamphlet on why I am not a Christian. And in that pamphlet, he said, historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we don't know anything about him. Isn't that a ridiculous statement? Well, his bold claim evaporated when we look at what the world has about Jesus and what the Word of God has about Jesus. Uh, For example, uh, the key event in the story of Jesus' life is what? His crucifixion on a cross and his resurrection from the dead. Society has a lot to say about that from the annals of history, And then the Word of God has a lot to say about it. And I want to share that with you today. Uh, The crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection is tied to a historical figure, a Roman governor of Judea named Pontius Pilate. That's out of the world. Pontius Pilate is out of the world. It is a unique characteristic of Christianity that Christianity is rooted in politics. It's not rooted in fable. It's not, it's not once upon a time story like it came out of Disney. We know a great deal about the life and works of Jesus Christ, and it's founded upon solid historical grounds. 
Jesus really was here. You know that. Now let me show it to you. The New Testament gives us numerous historical uh, events that corroborate the fact that Jesus was real. All four gospel accounts tell about his death on a cross and his resurrection from the grave. That's a real event. On Friday during Passover in or about A.D. 30, well, that's a real time. In the city of Jerusalem, that's a real place. Under the authority of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, that's a real person. And so skeptics have tried to raise doubt whether the, uh, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith are the same person or not. But when we turn to the actual historical accounts of Jesus, we discovered what the church has been saying about Jesus for 2,000 years is based upon fact. I want to share that with you today. Jesus appointed his apostles uh, eyewitnesses of his works and his words. They were eyewitnesses. The proclamation of the gospel by the early church focused on the testimony of the apostles because they were indeed eyewitnesses of his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. Now, how so? I've asked you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. So let's start there. In 1 and verses uh, 21 and 22. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become, listen, listen, witness with us of his resurrection. What we're talking about is, you know that Judas Iscariot hung himself. He betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He hung himself. Now they're trying to replace that apostle. And in choosing the apostle, he has to be someone who was an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. Why? Because these men are going to go out and preach. They're going to win the world to Jesus, and they have to have their facts. And nobody has facts straight like an eyewitness. And so I praise God for that. You know, Peter said in 2 Peter 1.16, he said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then I want you to turn to Acts 3 and verse 15. Acts 3 uh, 15 reads this way. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And then uh, in, in Acts chapter 10, and verses 39 and 40, Acts 10, 39 and 40 reads, we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. And they were eyewitnesses of this. Luke introduces his gospel in chapter 1 and verse 2, uh, where he says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So Dr. Luke, a physician, he was not an eyewitness of the resurrection, so he went and interviewed the eyewitnesses of that account. 
and he formed the gospel of Luke from eyewitnesses. He formed the book of Acts until he joined them in the book of Acts by eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. I want you to think about that for a moment. When Luke refers to his sources as eyewitnesses in verse 2 of Luke chapter 1, he uses a Greek word called atoptes. Atoptes means to see for oneself. They were eyewitnesses. They saw it for themselves. Now, you guys, some of you may have watched the TV show CSI, uh, Crime Scene Investigation. CSI follows a team of criminalists. They solve cases uh, with uh, methodical, scientific inquiry. And one of the tools that CSI uses is the autopsy. The autopsy in, uh, is a systematic scientific examination of a cadaver to determine the cause of death. Luke's word for eyewitnesses, autoptes, is the root word for our uh, word autopsy. It describes someone who is a direct, first-hand knowledge of certain persons, events, and circumstances, and is in a position to authoritatively tell what happened. The biblical gospels are not only a record of eyewitness testimony, but they, are, they were written and widely circulated, listen, while the eyewitnesses were still alive. Yeah, Matthew and Mark's gospel were written around 50 A.D. Luke's gospel was written around 60 A.D. John's gospel was written around 85 A.D. The eyewitnesses of the resurrection were still alive and they could verify or if the accounts were wrong and they were not, then they would be able to say, these gospel writings are invalid. These gospel writings are uh, irrelevant. They're inaccurate. Toss, toss them into the fire and burn them. But they didn't say that. They verified what the gospel writers wrote, that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead on the third day. And so Luke's uh, a, a physician, a doctor. Luke accurately, as a historian, uh, shows us political figures See, we, we identify with dates and political figures, and the gospel is intertwined in political figures the entire way through. Let me show you that. Luke fixes the time of Jesus' birth during what? Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great. That's not once upon a time. That's not fairy tale. He accurately refers to the ruling members of the family of Herod, the leading members of the Jewish priestly caste, the five Roman governors, Sergius Paulus, Gallio, Felix, Festus, Pontius Pilate. Luke is accurate and he must be trusted in his writings. But not only did Jesus appoint his apostles who were eyewitnesses of his works and his words, but we also have accounts from secular history that verify that Jesus Christ lived. When we read about non-Christian sources from the first and second centuries, we can gain a lot of knowledge. Let me share some of them. For example, Josephus was an ancient Jewish historian who wrote the Antiquities of the Jews about the time of A.D. 
70. And here's what he wrote. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accepted the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many Greeks. He was the Messiah. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, he condemned him to be crucified. Those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life. For the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. This is 40 years after Jesus raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And that's what a Jewish historian wrote about Jesus. I wonder why Bertrand Russell didn't know about that. And then there's Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman senator, uh, greatest ancient Roman historian. He wrote about uh, Nero's burning of Rome, uh, the burning of Rome in AD 64, but he wrote about this in the Annals in AD 112. And here's what he said. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. Now, this is a pagan Roman historian writing and describing Christians and the Christ. I wonder why Bertrand Russell wrote, we don't know if he existed at all. And how many people bought his book and believed it? And then there's Lucian, a satirist. And a satirist is one who writes with wit. He, he, he writes against uh, individuals, the government, uh, corporations. Um, he, he writes against societies. Uh, and he wrote in his book, The Passing of the Peregrinos. And here's what he said. They still worship the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced the new cult into the world. Furthermore, their first lawgiver persuaded them that they were all brothers of one another after they had transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods and by worshiping the crucified teacher, the wise man. They worshiped him living under his laws. And then the letter of Pliny the Younger, the Roman, Roman governor of Bithynia writing to the Roman emperor Trajan in 107 AD. He wrote, he says of Christians that he interrogated. They met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as if to a god. Looks like we can learn a lot from secular history about Jesus. Where was Bertrand Russell when he said, well, we doubt he even existed. 
Nevertheless, what facts do we find out from these non-Christians? Well, one, that Jesus was a real person that lived in Palestine. That he had a brother named G uh, James. That he had a reputation as a wonder worker. He was called to Christ and his followers regarded him as the promised Messiah. He introduced a new religion and expected his followers to forsake all other religions and live under his teachings. His followers reverenced him as deity. At the instigation of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he was crucified by Pontius Pilate on a Passover Eve during the reign of the emperor Tiberius. His followers reported that three days after his death, he appeared to them restored to life. His religion did not cease with his death, but eventually spread to Rome. Now, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that we've learned that much from secular history? And people would doubt the Word of God? Why would you doubt the Word of God when there's plenty of people that wrote about Jesus and wrote about what he was about? And they were pagans. When the Bible declares that Jesus died on a cross for our salvation, that great theological truth is rooted in historical fact, it is not a myth. And so, you know, my, you, you know what I'm going to say next, that we don't base our faith upon historical uh, facts. We base our faith upon the written word of God. And the written word of God wrote about Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that he died upon a cross for our sins, and that he raised on the third day from the dead. He spent 40 days among his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and then he ascended uh, in the clouds into heaven, and he promised that one day he is coming back. If you turn over to Romans chapter 1 and verses 14 through 17, I want to read there. Romans 1, 14 through 17. We base, we base our life upon the Holy Scriptures. Our soul's destiny, our daily conscience is based upon the Word of God. Romans 1, 14 through 17. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith uh, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so Paul says, number one, in verse 14, I'm a debtor. I owe it to God to share this wonderful message. Verse 16, the power of God is for all the people who would have faith and believe. And then John outran Peter to the tomb that, that Easter morn, as you recall. In John's Gospel, chapter 20, and verse 8, it says, He saw and he believed. John became one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church as an apostle of the Lord, after he walked with Jesus, heard him teach, saw his miracles, and saw him raised from the dead. Each of these men willing to go to their own death. You know, when you're facing death, you're ready to recant anything just to live again. 
These men accepted death as horrible as it was. And they would not recant that they saw a risen Christ. Luke records Peter's message in Acts 2 where Peter said in verse 24, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held by its power. Jesus cannot be held back by the grave's power. And neither will you. And neither will you. At the end of time, when the trumpet sounds, the voice of the archangel shouts, and we are going home. Praise God. And so what, is, what does all this mean? It means that God is in control. It means that Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves that he will triumph at the end of time and that we will raise as well. It means that Jesus' power is more powerful than the power of the grave. We sing that song, Up from the grave he arose, and with a mighty triumph over his foes, he arose a victor from the grave. And he's promised to come back, and he's going to reign with us. Praise his name. Revelation says he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Why are the tribes of the earth going to mourn over Jesus' return? Because they're not ready. They don't think they need to be ready. But when he gets here, it's judgment day. It's time. John concludes in the book of Revelation, if you turn with me please to chapter 22, so you just go to the end of the Bible and you can find this one. In Revelation 22, verses 12 through 14, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Wow. Join me in serving the Christ. Do not back down. Confess him gladly that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and he is coming soon. Be ready for that day. Until that day, you say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Say it with a smile. Be loud and proud that Jesus Christ is King of kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray in thanksgiving for what you have revealed to us in uh, secular history, but I'm grateful for the word. This word that was brought to us by the Holy Spirit over uh, 1,600 years by 40 different authors, but they all spoke the same theme. And the theme is that you are our great God and that you stand alone. Nothing can touch you. Nothing is greater than you. And that Jesus Christ is over all. I praise you today, dear God, for the scriptures. I praise you and thank you for the eyewitnesses that shared these accounts. And that we can take the eyewitness accounts and share them with the world. But today, dear God, 
Our mission is just the person next to us. Our mission today is so simple. It's just one person. And maybe, dear God, there's someone here today that wants to accept this Jesus. And if they want to come to Christ, that they would be willing to give their heart and soul to Christ today. That they would confess his name. That they would repent of their sins in prayer. And that they would go to the watery grave of baptism to die with Jesus. To be raised to walk in newness of life. Today, may someone answer the call. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.